Well, please uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 14 of Acts chapter 1 this morning. Acts 1, verses 6 through 14. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks out there, you can find our text on page 909. The title of our sermon is uh, Be My Witnesses. And the, the key words for our worshipers in training are spirit, power, and witness, I think. I changed them like eight times this week. So, yeah, spirit, power, and witness, we'll go with that. And um, so we're in Acts chapter 1. And uh, we'll, we'll open it up this way. Last words. Last words. They, they carry a significant weight, don't they? Sometimes we, we ask a set of last words to bear more weight than is reasonable. Sometimes we don't. But either way, the, the last words that a person speaks matter. For those of you who have lost a loved one, do you recall the last words that he or she spoke to you? Maybe you don't. Maybe last words don't always leave a mark. But sometimes they do. Sometimes last words are words of blessing. Other times they are words of instruction. Other times they are words that simply bring pain to our hearts upon reflection. Last words aren't always good words. The final words a dear friend or family member speaks to you, especially before departing to eternity, can have a tremendous impact on you. And often it's good and right that they should. On the flip side, have you ever thought about what your last words will be? If, if you're given the chance to knowingly speak a set of final words to your loved ones, what would you say? What topic of discourse would you take up? What words would you want to leave with friends and family members for their consideration, for their musing, for their comfort long after you're gone? Last week, we began a new series going through the book of Acts. Starting here in Acts and going all the way to the end over many months. And one of the things that we, we noted was that this book recounts what Jesus continued to do and teach during his reign from heaven. That he continues to do now. Right? Luke began his gospel by saying he wanted to tell Theophilus about what Jesus began to do and teach. And so Acts, the second volume of this work, tells what Jesus began, uh, continued to do and teach. And he says that Jesus spent the 40 days after his resurrection, just between the resurrection and the ascension, when he left them, he says he spent those days talking with them about the kingdom of God. Those were 
Jesus' last words to his disciples. Words about the kingdom. And we will see them, specifically his very last words that he left with them before going to heaven. We'll see them in our text today. What we saw last week before we get there, though, is that we, we saw that Luke introduces in the first five verses of Acts... Uh, a few themes that are going to be repeated throughout the book. And we won't introduce every single theme that he mentions in every sermon, but it's worth noting here what we saw last week was that first, Luke, if you remember, connects Acts with the Old Testament expectation of a coming kingdom. We also saw that Luke emphasized the centrality of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension for establishing that kingdom. And third, we saw Luke allude to the fact that the kingdom's advancement rests upon God's triune nature. And then today, in verses 6 through 14, we're going to see that all of this kingdom talk that Jesus had done in these 40 days leads his disciples to ask a question. Now, I don't know if it was, they knew it was the last question they would get to ask him or not. But it was the last question they got to ask him, and it's the last answer that he gives before his ascension. So let me read these verses. I'm going to read verses 1 all the way through 14 just to fill out this context a bit. We're going to read 1 through 14, outline it, and then get to work. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard it from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went, up to the, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we're going to look at this text under just two headings this morning. First, in verses 6 through 8, we will see the final conversation that takes place between Jesus and his 
apostles, his disciples uh, before his ascension. And in that conversation, we're going to consider a few more major themes that this book, uh, that Luke introduces for us in this book. So we're going to look at this conversation in verses 6 through 8, consider some of these major themes, three of them, I think. And then the second part of this sermon, we're going to look at verses 9 through 14, and we're going to make some observations about the response of the disciples to this conversation and to what's just happened. So in the first place then, would you look with me at verses 6 through 8, where we see this last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before his ascension into heaven. As we said, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom. And all of this talk leads to a question from the lips of the disciples. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Is is that what all of this has been leading to? Now's the time that you're restoring the kingdom. Now, the, the disciples, I think, catch a lot of flack for this question. And while it does seem very likely that they are at least slightly off target in what they're asking, the question isn't super wild and crazy and far-fetched. It is at least on topic. They have been talking about the kingdom. And I think the question is even a fair one. God had been promising for centuries a king and a kingdom to Israel. And yet, at that point in history, the Jews were still in bondage to Rome. And so where is this king they might be wandering and and they had really gotten their hopes up that Jesus would be this king but then he was crucified but now having seen him raised from the dead there's there's a new sense of excitement there's a new wonder that perhaps this is this is the real deal and so it's a fair question to wonder well what is this now resurrected messiah going to do with regard to this kingdom that he's been talking about during his whole ministry on earth and now in these 40 days after his his resurrection. Some see Jesus' response to this question as an utter rejection of the question. They see him rejecting uh, the disciples' apparent focus on the nation of Israel and its particular relationship to the kingdom. Right? They, it, it does seem to some extent that he's correcting their thinking, he's broadening it, he's adjusting it, but he does affirm much of it. What he rejects here isn't the question about the kingdom or the restoration of a kingdom. What he rejects is their attempt to calculate the precise timing of the full restoration of the kingdom And all that such knowledge would involve. So he doesn't say that a restoration of the kingdom doesn't exist. He doesn't deny such a restoration. But he wants to reframe their thinking here. right? Because it's important that we understand how Jesus understands the restoration. Which I do think is different than what the disciples understood. He says... It's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then to summarize the point of what comes next is he says the kingdom is going to be restored, but not in the way that you think. 
They were all likely expecting still some kind of revolutionary revolt whereby Jesus and them and others, they would storm Rome and take things back. Right? The son of David would sit on the throne in Israel having conquered his enemies, perhaps by the sword. But that's not the way it's going to go down, Jesus says. But to, to make this conversation a bit more complicated, as Jesus uh, was, was often uh, eager to, to do, maybe not complicated, but it, per, to make it something that you have to think about deeply, uh, he answers their question by answering, I think, a better question that they should have been asking. Richard Gaffin writes this. He says, admittedly, Jesus' reply is indirect. The apostles ask a when question. Jesus gives a what answer. Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And he says, this is what you need to be doing. Right? Gaffin goes on. He says, the force of Jesus' answer is this. As the apostles are concerned about the kingdom, their immediate concern is not to be its future, but its present. Not its future, but its present. Specifically, the impending task before them. The task of their worldwide witnessing. So in verse 8, here Jesus, rather than answering all of the ins and the outs that were wrapped up in their question about this full restoration of the kingdom, this restoring of the kingdom to Israel. Some of their questions are perfectly understandable, but rather than answering all of those questions, what he does is he outlines the way in which the kingdom is going to spread. He says the kingdom is going to spread by the power of the Spirit, through the witness of the apostles as they bear witness to Christ, and this will serve to unite Jews and Gentiles into one people of God, beginning here in Jerusalem and extending all the way to the ends of the earth. As we see at the end of the book, Rome and beyond. It's worth noting here, many of you probably know this, that Acts 1.8 functions more or less, as a, a programmatic statement for the book. Right? Jesus describes uh, the restoration of the kingdom of God as uh, unfolding in three phases. Each phase marked, uh, as we'll see, by a miraculous reception of the Holy Spirit. We see witnessing in Jerusalem, witnessing in Judea and Samaria, and witnessing to the ends of the earth, rolled out in this book in the coming pages. In Acts 1-7, through we see the witnessing that took place in Jerusalem, beginning with a miraculous reception of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 8-9, we see the witnessing of Judea and Samaria with the miraculous reception of the Spirit in Acts 8. In Acts 10-28, through we see the witness going to the ends of the earth, as I said, namely Rome and beyond, with the miraculous reception of the Spirit in Acts 10. And so, uh, Jesus and then Luke uses these words of Jesus to, to un, uh, unroll this book of Acts. And so I want to consider three things from this statement that Jesus makes in verse 8. Three themes that this 
statement un, uh, introduces and opens up for us that we'll, we will find repeating in the book of Acts. Um, three things that are going to resurface that we need to have some familiarity with now before we get to them later. The first thing, Jesus makes clear that the kingdom advances exclusively in the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, the manner in which the kingdom advances is through the witness of the apostles. And as we'll see in particular, it is through the suffering witness of the apostles. And third, the restoration of the kingdom for which the, the apostles, the disciples are longing, it is much bigger and broader and better than they ever expected. So we're going to look at each of these briefly under this first heading. So first, the kingdom spreads only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, again, in answering the question about the restoration of the kingdom, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is twice now in the span of six, uh, rather eight verses that Luke has connected for us the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. We saw it last week in verses 3 and through 5. He said that while Jesus was teaching about the kingdom, during those 40 days, he told them to wait on the promised baptism of the Spirit. Now, in verses 6 through 8, he answers their question about the restoration of the kingdom by telling them again, in essence, to wait on the promised baptism of the Spirit. Now, we're going to consider the baptism of the Spirit and all of that uh, a bit more fully when we get to Acts 2. But for now, what we need to see is this. We, we, need to, we don't want to pass by this connection between the kingdom of God and the reception of the Spirit. The, the point here is clear. The restoration of the kingdom is accomplished exclusively in the power provided by the Spirit. Right? This, this was, uh, was much anticipated in the Old Testament. Texts like Isaiah 32, 14 through 15 or, and Isaiah 44, 3 through 5. Both of these texts uh, anticipate the end of the desolation of Judah and the commencement of the age of peace and righteousness. And they expect those two things, the end of Judah's desolation, the beginning of the age of peace and righteousness, they are going to coincide with the coming of the Spirit. Luke, in these opening verses, is going to great pains to prepare his readers for what is about to come in Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2 is a monumental event. And, and Luke wants us to be ready for it when it comes. As Jesus wanted his Disciples to be ready for it when it comes. When we get to Acts 2, to understand what is happening there, we need to see this connection between the kingdom of God and the sending and reception of the Spirit. And so that's, and again, we're not, we're not going to get into all of it now, but we need to see it, note it, and tuck it away for when we get back to it later. And so that's the first thing that we see here in what Jesus says is that this work and spread of the kingdom without the Spirit doesn't happen. Second, the manner in which the kingdom spreads is through the witness of the apostles. 
And specifically, what I want to argue here is that it's through their witness in suffering. Right, this, this witness language that Jesus, is, that Jesus uses here, it's almost certainly a reference to Isaiah 43. We read this in verse 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. What this passage in Isaiah 43 is anticipating is, is the coming age when God's people would be transformed and become witnesses to the salvation of God. And so that's what Jesus is, uh, is offering here in his final words to his disciples is that that day that we've been longing for is here. Now, the suffering piece. I, I want to be clear and to be fair to Luke and to Jesus that neither one of them explicitly states here that the witnessing involved, that it is witnessing through suffering. Now, Jesus makes that plain elsewhere, but the emphasis here in Acts 1 for the disciples is that at the time of speaking, they needed to know that the coming of the Spirit, as expected in the Old Testament, would bring about restoration, would bring about the restoration of the kingdom, and that this coming Spirit would empower them to Bear witness to Jesus. But I want to think with you for a moment here about this witness and, and what it, how it worked out in the book of Acts. Think about the witness of the, of the disciples and the apostles in the book of Acts. As you read through Acts, what do you find pertaining to their, their ministry and their mission and their work of bearing witness What's the manner in which the kingdom spreads? Well, it spreads through suffering. Consider this. Jesus says here in Acts 1.8 that his disciples would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and then would go on to witness in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. But what does Luke say in Acts 8.1? So not 1.8, but 8.1. Coincidentally, I suppose. He says this. He says that after the stoning of Stephen, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of, you guessed it, Judea and Samaria. And so up until Acts chapter 8, everyone is, is huddled up in Jerusalem doing ministry and witnessing in Jerusalem. And as we'll see, that involved quite a bit of suffering as well. But what was it that propelled the church out into Judea and Samaria? It was the stoning of Stephen and the persecution against the church that began that day. Now we're told in Luke 8 that the apostles bravely stayed in Jerusalem despite the danger they faced. The others scattered however, and they went about preaching the word. Now consider this. Luke picks this theme up again in Acts 11, verses 19 and 20. He says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Some spoke only to Jews, but others spoke to the Hellenist, or Greek-speaking non-Jews. 
And so again, this, that persecution that began in Acts 8 didn't just send the church into Judea and Samaria. It sent them beyond. It sent them not just to the Jews, but in Acts 8 and 9, we see it sent them to the Samaritans. In 10 and beyond, to the Gentiles. As we see throughout this book, the advancement of the kingdom of God is intricately connected with the apostles bearing witness to Christ in the face of suffering, opposition, and persecution. I read one commentator uh, this week. He said, the book of Acts is nonsensical without suffering. You don't have the book of Acts without suffering. And so while this, the theme of suffering is, is, is not explicitly stated and thrown in our faces here in Acts 1, 8... It is most certainly implied. Because as you go through the book, with Acts 1-8 in mind, you can't divorce suffering from witnessing in this book. So Luke absolutely wants us to draw a connection between the kingdom advancing, the, the witnessing of the disciples, and that being done through suffering. So those are the two things from, from this verse. There's one more we'll look at here. When Jesus offers this final statement to his disciples, he makes a third point. The kingdom of God, dear friends, he says, is much bigger than they ever imagined. It does not simply involve those who, who's, who live in this small strip of land in the Middle East, who can trace their lineage back to David, back to Abraham, Jesus says the restoration of the kingdom includes now, with with no hesitation, Jews and Gentiles. Prior to this, prior to the, the advent of Christ and the new covenant and all that has taken place here, prior to this, one had to identify with the nation of Israel, including the nation's moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, in order to be Considered part of the people of God. Now, all that would be necessary for inclusion among God's people, identify with Christ. And that's it. Take that message to the ends of the earth, identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are His. He tells His disciples, yes, the kingdom shall be restored shall be restored to Israel, but you need to know what that means, disciples, he says. He says this restoration begins with the the -the around-the-corner arrival of the long-awaited Spirit who will empower you to suffer and to bear witness to to me, Jesus says, namely his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He says, and this will bring about the restoration of the kingdom where Jews and Gentiles are brought together as one people under the kingdom's sway. And with that, he was lifted up, passed through the clouds, and they saw him no more. How'd they respond? Second main point this morning. He says this, we see in verses 9 and 10, the disciples have, well, kind of a twofold response in 9, 
9 through 14, and 9 and 10, we see their first response. And it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Right? If you combine what Jesus has been saying to them in verses 4 and 5 and 7 through 8, we can summarize his exhortation to them in this way. He says, head to Jerusalem, wait for the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit. Go do that. That's what he tells them to do. And he says, and when that day comes, you will be empowered to bear witness to me, to bear witness to my name, and you will testify about me here and there and everywhere. But then after his ascension, what do they do? They just stand there, staring up at the sky. Now, we're not told exactly how long they stared at the sky. Uh, in some ways, it doesn't seem like it was that long, but, but based on the two men's response to them, it apparently was longer than warranted. Now, I have no idea how long of a look is warranted after your Lord and Savior physically begins to float into heaven and out of sight after three some odd years of constant companionship Unbelievable miracles, a death, and a resurrection. Like, I don't know how long you get to look at that. I would wager that most of us, all of us in this room, would be tempted to let our gaze linger a while as well. And so I'm willing to cut the disciples some slack here. But we must remember the point to take away from this mild rebuke of these, of these men is that the disciples had a job to do. Jesus had given them a mission, and they were not going to fulfill it by simply staring into the clouds. They were to go to Jerusalem, wait upon the Spirit, and from there, take the message to the world as the Spirit supplied power to do so. And we see in verse 11 that, you're right, they're not even in Jerusalem when this takes place. They're outside of Jerusalem, and they're supposed to go there. And so a faithful response would have been, apparently, to immediately make haste, head back to Jerusalem, and prayerfully wait on the Spirit. But they just, they just stand there, staring at the sky, and they catch a brief rebuke. With a promise, Jesus is coming back. But you have work to do. And so taking the men at their word, the disciples get on with the work to which Jesus had left them. They returned to Jerusalem. They went to the place where they were staying and were told they devoted themselves to prayer in one accord with one another. And this is significant. As I taught Latin for several years uh, before becoming a pastor, and, and there's a phrase, a Latin phrase, festina lente, it means to make haste slowly, and that's kind of what it feels like here with the disciples. It's like, hurry up, boys, get on with it, so that you can, you can go and wait. Right? They're chastened by the angel's rebuke, they get on with the waiting that they're called to do, and what we see, this is what I want you to see with me, waiting isn't a passive work of lethargy, waiting isn't boring. It isn't laziness. Waiting is here an absolute devotion to prayer. Now, I don't know what their prayers were like. I don't know if the prayers were sort of weak and feeble. 
confused and afraid, but they were devoted nonetheless, or if they were zealous and full of power and fire and passion, I don't know, I don't know what they sounded like. But we do know what, what they should have been or what, what they certainly could have been. And, and if we're going to learn from them, I want to ask us about our praying. What's our, what are our prayers like? What, are, what should our prayers be like? Brother, sister, what is your prayer life like? Is your life marked by devotion to prayer? As an individual... Is your life marked by devotion to prayer? How about as a family? As a family, is your, is your family, if, if, if someone were to observe your family over a week or a month or a year, aliens from outer space or whatever, and just came in and watched you and left, what would be the report? Is your family devoted to prayer? How about us as a church? Are we devoted to prayer? I want to in, invite you all, if, if, if you've not been able to make it, every Sunday we've started praying from 9 to 9.20 here. Just as a church, it's 20 minutes, it's short. So far in the month of February, we've already prayed for an hour together. So There's three Sundays, 20 minutes. It was great. 500 building in the front room over there. If you've not made it, come join us. Or Sunday evening service where we pray together. Or how else might we as a church, if you have an idea or thought about how we might better pray together, more fervently, more often, more regularly as a church, let's talk. Let's encourage and promote prayer here. We need to embrace our utter dependency on God. And seek him in earnest, expectant prayer. Consider the words of Octavius Winslow. He says this, Pray expectantly, diligently, and perseveringly. Expect an answer to your prayer, a promise to your request, a compliance with your suit. Be as much assured that God will answer as that you have asked or that he has promised. Do I pray like that? Do we pray like that? Do you? One final comment about this and then a brief application and then we're done. What, what attended this devotion to prayer? What was one of the marks of this early church? They were praying a church, but they were a praying church, but they were also unified. We're told that the 11 remaining apostles, since Judas Iscariot was gone... They were of one accord. They were praying together with the women. Women like Mary and Martha and, and Jesus' mother Mary. They were praying with Jesus' brothers. Next week in verse 15, we'll see that all in all, there were about 120 people among them. And they were of one mind. Men and women of the faith here at Redeemer Baptist Church. Do we dwell together in such devotional prayer and such unity of mind? That we are, beyond a shadow of a doubt, committed to Christ and His cause. Because it is only through such a commitment that we can expect to see lasting fruit in our ministry here. I pray that we would be committed to these things. So, briefly, and let me run through 
um, two points of application before we go to the table. What does it mean that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom? What, what does that mean? What, well, it means that Jesus right now is reigning from heaven as king. Do you know that? Do you, more importantly, do you love that? Does your heart swell at the thought that Jesus Christ has exchanged his crown of thorns for a crown of glory? And that he rules right now as the rightful king of the universe. Do you want the world around you to embrace that fact as well? How do you embrace the kingdom? How do you embrace that reality? Well, you embrace the king. Entrance into this kingdom is enjoyed according to your response to the king. Do you love the king? Have you received him by faith? Have you submitted your life to him in obedient humility? Well, then you can rightly claim heavenly citizenship. But if you've not done these things, friend, why not? What keeps you from looking to Jesus and loving him? And pray that you would wrestle with that question in your heart if you don't know and love Christ. And that you would come out of that wrestling match a lover of God. So a second thing. That's, that's, that's a brief explanation of what it means that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. There's much more to be said, but I want to consider finally here, what does the Bible want us to see regarding the manifestation of the kingdom of God? So it's here, right? Jesus brought it, but I don't see it. We don't see it with our eyes. What does the kingdom look like? Well, in one sense, it doesn't look like anything. It's only here in part. But it is really here, and with eyes of faith, we can see it. According to Jesus, the kingdom is made manifest as the gospel goes forth through the churches to the world. One author writes these marvelous words. He says, Acts recounts the struggle and success of the gospel message going forth all under the plan of God, centered on King Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. The triumph of this movement, while requiring the obedience of the apostles, cannot be attributed to them, but only to God himself. The change brought about by the twelve apostles is the most inexplicable, mysterious, and wonderful event ever witnessed in the world. Luke writes to encourage the church, telling it this is the plan of God. His kingdom plan is has not been put on a hiatus once Christ left. Rather, his kingdom kicks into high gear as the Spirit comes and the good news goes to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. So Redeemer Baptist Church, what part do we have in the advancement of God's kingdom? This is how we put it. We're a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. Joining in this great work, this great kingdom work, as Jesus put it in Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations, to bear witness to Him, to bear witness to him in all the earth. And we continue to carry the witness of Christ to the ends of the earth in the power of the Spirit. Uniting Jews and Gentiles under the same roof. All 
of those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus. Kingdom work is hearty work. And thankfully, for this work, he leaves us hearty provisions.